who do you want to be on the other side of this? Do you want to wonder or do you want to know that you did it? I think that's the the best feeling that you persevered through what you persevered through and live that, you know, that that's the story. And that's the choices you made every day to continue to be and be tugged and pulled along by this person right now, sitting here, knowing you've done it versus the other person who is there present right away saying, you can get out now. Got plenty of reasons why you probably could figure out a way to come back and do it again, more prepared, but I'm here now. And that's what I think is beautiful. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 147 of the Weekly Word Podcast. The Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. In the Weekly Word Podcast, I discuss what we can do in order to achieve our ultra-endurance outcomes. Most of these discussions are applicable to most any ultra-endurance athlete. And I've found that the topics that my athletes ask about, want me to discuss or explain in more depth, are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in as well. We talk about nutrition, training, recovery, sleep, strength, strategy, balancing daily life, mindset, and the curiosity with what the ultra-endurance lifestyle unleashes within us, why it resonates so deeply with so many of us. I try to share and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level, maintaining a strong mind and a mental resilience that comes with it, surely comes with ultra-endurance, as well as overall health in the form of nutrition, sleep, and recovery. With that, I try to answer email questions, deliver advice, observations, and tips for all of you, the listeners. This week on the podcast, I'm being interviewed by Billy Yang. I'm actually not being interviewed by him. I'm on his podcast. Billy and I met a few years ago at 29029 and had a fun weekend, had a blast of just being goofballs at an ultra endurance event. I've said many times that the 29029 Everesting event is a pretty fun entry into the ultra endurance world. Not that it's entry level. It is quite a difficult event. It's more that it's an easy gateway Yes, easy gateway, because it allows you to do something for 24, 36 hours without the pounding of the on the body like many ultra-endurance runs. In this case, you climb a mountain until you achieve 29,029 feet. But you take the gondola down, saving yourself the pounding on the legs and joints and so forth. But it's still not easy achieving 29,000 29 feet in elevation gain in a matter of 30 hours. That's a lot of repeats straight up a ski slope. Some of these events are in Snow Basin, Sun Valley, Stratton Mountain on the East Coast, and so forth. And they've done a lot of virtual events this past year due to the coronavirus and the epidemic. Anyway, Billy and I sort of hit it off, became good friends. Um, we were there. I was there with Rich, Troll, and Billy. We were all sort of promoting the event. I was a guest speaker at the event, and Rich was there as a guest athlete, and Billy was there to document it. And that's the cool thing about Billy. He is an incredible filmmaker. He captures the essence of ultra running, the stories that come with it, the immersion into nature. He captures that with a lens. If you're not familiar with his movies, his documentaries, his filmmaking abilities, 
take a look on YouTube. All you have to do is punch in Billy Yang and you'll find a lot of really cool movies. But he's also an ultra endurance athlete. He's done 100 milers. He's done all kinds of different ultra endurance events and adventures. And quite honestly, he's a good friend because he's open to doing anything. He was one of the athletes who was supposed to join me on the Tahoe Rim Trail. And you hear in this podcast why he couldn't. Because he decided to do the John Muir Trail, all the full length of it, a couple of weeks prior. Now it was hiking. But again, a bunch of friends asked him to do something. He always wanted to do it. He said yes. And that's what I appreciate. I appreciate that in any athlete that is fit enough and ready to pivot quickly to an ultra endurance adventure piques their interest. Now it was a bizarre summer in that Billy had the choice of the JMT and the Tahoe Rim Trail. And of course, we talk in more detail about why he couldn't join me on the Tahoe Rim Trail. But overall, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. We go sort of into my background, some of the things that many of you might not have heard before. And it's just a good conversation with a friend. We realized sort of afterwards that the mics were rolling. That's what it felt like and with the cameras going and so forth. Just to be more formal, Billy is an ultramarathon runner, like I mentioned, an adventurer and filmmaker. His YouTube documentaries on ultra running have over 11 million views. It's pretty insane. Connecting viewers to the emotions and play-by-play experiences of racing events like Hard Rock 100 and Western States 100. If you've never seen a Billy Yang film on YouTube, you're in for a treat. Until then, enjoy this conversation between two friends, a jovial, relaxed conversation. Like I say to many of my athletes, it sounds as though we're both having a beer. It goes in depth a little bit about my past. As you hear in this podcast, it's more how much he pulled out of me. I was more also in, I was also interested in finding out more about him, but we never got there. He deflected quite well. Have a great listen. Let me know what you think. And I look forward to talking to you next week on the Weekly Word Podcast, episode 148. Plenty to talk about. Enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome or welcome back to the Billy Yang Podcast. I am happy you are back. I'm happy to share my chat with ultra endurance coach and athlete, Chris Howe today. But first, man, oh man, 2020 is just relentless, isn't it? On top of all the obvious stuff going on from pandemic to protests, now most of the West Coast is currently enveloped in smoke due to the wildfires that are ravaging our natural landscape. Acres are being burnt, homes and at times lives are being lost, firefighters and various first responders are doing their darndest to combat the blazes. So just want to shout them out. My thoughts are definitely with them and with uh, you if you are among the thousands affected currently. But before California was on fire, we were reasonably free to adventure. And that is the focus of my conversation today's podcast with Chris Hout. If you do not know Chris, he is a former Olympic swimmer. He's a super accomplished athlete with a win at Coeur d'Alene in 2006. He was fourth overall American at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii, and now most recently in ultra marathons and ultra distance events, ranging from swim run events like Otillo to the Wasatch 100. He's taken all of that cumulative knowledge and started AIMP Coaching, which uh, stands for Advanced 
integrated mindset and performance. And he does so in Northern California in beautiful Marin County. He also has a podcast called the Weekly Word Podcast. And speaking of podcasts, he's made numerous appearances on the Rich Roll Podcast, which is probably where you know him from. Rich, who's a dear friend and also a client of Chris's. Uh, Chris and I met at an event called 29029 in uh, last, I want to say last summer, last August, when we get into a little bit of that. And we got to share a tent and many vertical feet together. And uh, we became uh, friends fairly quickly. So um, definitely enjoy his camaraderie and his company. We spoke at length about his uh, growth and endurance races from the aforementioned swimming and uh, triathlon events to ultra marathons, the swim run events. And uh, we talk about what well, we talked about self curated adventures. Uh, pushing through pain and discomfort and finding the why and how we can apply that mindset to dealing with today's problems, of which, as I alluded to, are many right now. Uh, so anyway, let's get into it with the one and the only Chris Howe. So what's up? What do you want to talk about? Not much. Well, not much is up right now, but I thought we would just have some fun talking about our two um, contrasting yet bizarrely similar <laughs> adventures. <laughs> In what ways do you think it was similar? Um, well, as with anything, you go through the ups and downs, right? And the doubts yeah. and the negativity. Um, so there's definitely that. And although mine was more compact, four days versus three weeks, what was it? Three weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Sorry. Sorry. Two weeks. Um, I can see or feel or think or imagine that your emotions and the, the range that we go through on these events is similar. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, and I... I want to say I just read back on your Instagram posts and I appreciate the candor because I do think that some of the vulnerability and the admittance of doubt when it creeps in, especially from an accomplished athlete like yourself, is, uh, I don't want to, yeah, I'll say refreshing for lack of a better term. I, I do think that it's uh, somehow reassuring to know that even best laid plans you are tackling something that is that is right on that cusp and the precipice of can i do this can i not do this and i think that inherently is what makes it so interesting right because if we had some kind of guaranteed yeah, outcome and there's no finish line right um sure there's the distance but that's the interesting thing that i find with self-curated adventures and that is it's basically one all in your head because you define the distance, you define the pace, you define your own finish line or your own desired outcome. But I also find that, that those doubts, they never go away, no matter how prepared you are. Whether I did 20 Ironmans or I was on my second Ironman, the doubts still creep up. What could go wrong? How could this you know, be an unsuccessful day, right? And so it's what I was posting today. Your ability to put that out of your mind takes practice. And if you don't practice that, 
you then you then you no longer have those tools as familiar and as triggerable um, available in these long endurance events, right? And that's something why, like for racers this year, like professional racers, I feel bad because you lose that edge to just deal with the smallest doubt that makes that two three percent, right? Yeah. Well, no, um, no matter how experienced one is or i am or anybody is i mean i don't consider myself that much more experienced in ultra endurance world than many other people i still you think you get this microcosm of emotions that creep up every single time you know i think walmsley gets the same questions now is it versus another person no it's more versus himself when you're out there alone and his you know, 14 hours feel like our 24 hours or 30 hours, right? But it, it all gets compressed in the same window. And that's what I noticed in my four days. Well, let's, uh, we'll get into all of that. But let's, yeah. uh, let's talk about you for a second, because I don't know how to those of you out there who aren't familiar with Chris and his resume, it is quite extensive, and it's quite varied. And uh, I want you to brag a little bit. What have you competed in your area of expertise or the athletic events that you evolved from? Yeah, it is very varied. (laughs) It's like two lives. I once had this Olympic swimmer life um, that seemed so far and distant ago, which now my ultra endurance life has grown longer (laughs) than my swimming life, which is sort of weird and sort of ages me. But um, Yeah, I was a a swimmer for Germany. I'm a dual citizen between Germany and the United States. I was born here, raised by German parents, so I had the opportunity to swim for Germany in two Olympics, uh, 92 and 96, although 96, I was just an alternate. Didn't get to dip my toes in the water other than for warm-up or (laughs) warm-down. And so there was that. There's that life, 9th and 13th in 1992 so back then when we had finals and consolation finals i didn't make that either and what Um, specifically was your event 200 butterfly 400 im okay yeah so two harder events and i already as a young kid came to the conclusion that uh racing or doing the events that are harder means the field is smaller (laughs) and therefore i was like i've got a shot (laughs) So, so you're saying I, I got guess, a chance. I guess there's logic in there somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and then I was also very fortunate, um, the true bizarre history of my life and how the turning points took p- place is, you know, the wall comes down in 91 with Germany and the team gets unified and different um, forces at play for the East German swimmers. So therefore my ability to be one of the better swimmers in Germany just launched me up the, the, the proverbial ladder um, because those guys sort of dropped out. They had to get a job. They had to get a career. They had to figure out their own income. It wasn't all supported by the East German communist government. So a lot of political things at play. And uh, so I was at the right place at the right time, surely. Can we park there for a second? What do you remember specifically about that period? And maybe more importantly, what do you remember about your parents' reactions? Because they were probably a lot more close to it. They were not necessarily more close to it because they lived here. Um, they had left uh, the, for the United States. They emigrated here uh, 
No, I'm saying uh, in terms of history and connection. Oh, in terms to, of yeah. history, yeah. Well, they they actually observed um, pr- before I did regarding, you know, Chris, there might be some opportunity here because those supported in the East German system might now need to support themselves, as well as the athletic facilities were falling apart um, in Eastern Europe in this bizarre window. Like, who pays the bills? Who pays the utilities? Is the German government suddenly going to pay as in the West German government that took over, the unified government, are they going to pay all these incomes and all these families and all these apartments and these stipends and these cars and so forth that these kids, that which they were at the time, who grew up fully supported in this government system, all of a sudden, you know, the fire hydrant got turned off. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, how am I putting gas in my car? How am I paying the supposed rent? Actually, I can't swim in a pool. Nobody's tending to it. There's no chlorine in it. It's green, full of algae. Um, It's freezing cold. (laughs) What do I do? So there was a lot of that. There's just a lot of confusion. And in that window was an Olympic trials, was this this directive of we're combining teams, East and West, for the first unified team. And so it was a unique time. Um, And my parents... To answer that part of your question, it was, um, I don't know, it was, they didn't really think I was that good of a swimmer either. <laughs> I mean, they were always very supportive, but yeah. never was it a reality that I would get on the A national team and, and be able to swim for Germany. I was pretty good, um, got some college scholarships and so forth. Even that, I was not, I only got books and tuition. I didn't even get housing <laughs> and meals. So, um, but Again, I rose pretty quickly, worked pretty hard, developed pretty late, and everything just sort of hit at the same time. So they came to Olympic trials, I remember, in Munich, not expecting much. And next thing, we, were, uh, we had a busy summer ahead of us. Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's uh, continue on your athletic trajectory of uh, where you came up from. Yeah, and so then from there, um, a couple years of swimming, I tried again despite uh, some grad school and some work and so forth to make the 96 team, but um, stipulations had changed, Olympic rules had changed. Um, After the 92 games, you had to display in the previous calendar year a time that is consistent with the top 10 or 12 in the world in order to make the A team. So therefore, that would automatically qualify you. If you didn't get a time in the top 10 or 12, I don't remember if it's 10 or 12 right now, but top 20, you could make the team, but you'd have to make it in another event in a top 20. So you'd be on the B qualifier. So you're still on the national team. You're still going to the Olympics, but you'd have to, they wouldn't take you unless you go to the event and go to the Olympics in another event. Many of us remember that because you remember possibly from the 92 games, you would have early heats of swimming where you would have countries sending their automatic qualifiers before they had these, they had these standards with somebody swimming four minutes for a hundred freestyle, right? Like they can barely swim one length of the pool and back. And, but you get an automatic entry because you're, you know, Zimbabwe and you get a swimmer, (laughs) right? So they changed that as of the 92 Olympics. And they created qualifying standard because these morning heats with all these countries and all these swimmers would take forever. And so within that too, not necessarily did I get 
surprised or shocked by it. It was more just I wasn't able to um, do those times. So I was an alternate. Um, that's where you take somebody on the relays or other events and so forth that could jump in and do a variety of events. And my 400 IM and my versatility made me an alternate in case somebody gets sick or has you know injured or something like that. When did the uh, running and the cycling enter into the picture? It did not until um, after I was done in 96. I was a little disappointed just not being able to display the hard work. And I entered in a triathlon locally with a friend of mine, um, actually my, uh, my college coach. And uh, it was an Olympic distance triathlon. And I was completely shattered by doing it. But it was so hard and it caught me so off guard on how hard it was, how I blew up completely that I, uh, I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is curious to me. I want to figure this out. So I went to a, a more competitive one. Um, this, this first one was just a tiny little one in New Jersey, um, Atlantic City or something like that. So then I went down to Florida to what's called St. Anthony's. And that's a legendary triathlon in the triathlon world. And I was convinced I would win the swim there again because I'd won it at the other one. But I got out of the water overall like fourth or fifth. And I, could, I, was, I was quite surprised little niche sport. Why am I not winning the swim? And sure enough, I find out that there's like four other Olympians who had gotten out of the water in front of me, legendary swimmers, gold medalist in the hundred backstroke, David Burkoff, um, Ironman world champion swimmer and Olympic team member, Lars Jorgensen, and like uh, two other really renowned NCAA swimmers. And I was like, ah, so this is where elephants go to die. I found you guys. <laughs> this, is, this is where all of us swimmers sort of end up. And they, they showed me the ropes. I mean, Dave Burkoff lived in Montana and was a really accomplished triathlete. And he just not took me under his wing. But he that whole afternoon after the race was just telling me, yeah, this is what we do. And this is how we race. And this is how we train. And I was, I was hooked. And that's where swimming and uh, biking and running got more and more involved. And I quickly in 98 did an Ironman because that's just what you do, right? Like, sure. You got to get the MDOT tattoo or earn it anyway. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I got it on my two left calves. No. Um, And then uh, from there, I was hooked on ultra endurance where it was like, you know, the longer, the better. And what about ultra marathons? Um, ultra marathons, I actually didn't start until I, uh, trained for Leadville in 2000, Ooh, that must've been eight or seven. Um, and I even had a friend of mine say, you know what, you might want to start with a 50 miler. Um, it's a lot on the body. You've been doing triathlon for a couple of years at a high level. Um, switching to that much load on your feet, um, might you just, just see if you like a 50 miler, but of course, you know, just like anything else, it's like, nah, I'm diving, diving right in. And, uh, but I would say I was doing uh, Tahoe 100 and, uh, or no, Tahoe 50 miler, which I just ran part of that course and had sort of a beef to work through there. Like <laughs> DNF that one. Um, my hip was bothering me because I was walking funny on my foot. I already noticed that I was getting somewhat of a metatarsal type of stress fracture overuse injury. So I trained another two, three weeks on, uh, for Leadville, and then I had to stop. I knew I was w- going down a bad path, could barely run, quickly transitioned back to triathlon, 
did escape from Alcatraz triathlon and sure enough on the course, a motorcycle cut me off. I crashed doing 40 miles an hour, skidded down the road on my back, broke my collarbone. And I knew, you know what, this year wasn't meant to happen, but I definitely got the ultra running bug then. And then quickly went on to do a couple of 50 mile, uh, 50 Ks and 50 milers. I did, um, way too cool, like three or four times, had some success there, um, running with the Antracens of the world and the Hals of the world and um, here in Marin. And they quickly also taught me, this is how it's done. You know, don't what start it, off. What was it that intrigued you? Because in a lot of ways, I feel like ultra running and, um, you know, let's say long distance triathlons are, they're both simultaneously similar, but also like vastly different in terms of. For sure. Yeah, preparation and even just like the culture of it you know mm-hmm. as you know ultra running there's a lot more beer cracking either at the end of races or sometimes even during and i feel like there's a lot more of um i don't want to take anything away from trail runners but there's a lot more structure and discipline because it involves so many disciplines and i mm-hmm. feel like you have to really nail that that um that pie that's involved yeah. in training in terms of dedicating, you know, swim, bike, run, all that. So um, how was that transition made for somebody like yourself who came from a Olympic background? Well, it was very structured in swimming already. So allowing myself to go into Ironman triathlon already broke the structure a little bit. And then also early on, I, the way I trained in triathlon was already very different. I was very much aerobic, low heart rate, zone two, filmaphetone type of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kept me very fresh, very injury free, and already sort of not taking it as seriously. I never thought of taking triathlon that seriously. I just continued to improve my results as I was going along. And eventually I actually got called out by a couple of pros saying, quit playing around in the amateur field and getting all the attention. Why don't you come up and play with the big boys? That's the only reason I went pro. Um, So I would train with those guys and a few others um, at different locations around the country. And sure enough, I gave it pro two or three years or two years, excuse me. And even there, I knew it wasn't really for me. It was not something I was that interested in. And so the ultra running world and the ultra endurance world in general, because for me, you know, going for three, four, five days of cycling, 100 miles a day, that was intriguing, much more in the training than any type of run off the bike. Or or even if I did do a big uh, run off the bike, it would be because I ran, you know, 16, 20 miles off of a five-hour bike. I like the long, arduous, difficult days where you discover more about yourself um, and you're stuck in this sort of pain cave. That uh, that's I knew early on in triathlon as well as ultra running, that's the place I like to be. I can't help but, I don't know how many of these moments you have in your life, but I can't help but think back to, um, it might have been somewhat similar to your trajectory and timeline. We're talking like maybe the late aughts when I first got into running and then I feel like, you know, I did the half marathon and the marathon, what's the next, what's the next thing? And yeah. so I looked at the, tri- the triathlon, um, only I got into a kind of a gnarly motorcycle accident where i scraped up a lot of my skin and this was 
probably, I want to say, three weeks before my first registered Olympic distance triathlon here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so I was very much on the cusp of just doing it anyway, and, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately pulled out at the last minute. But I always wonder what would have happened had I jumped into that, because I know myself, and I feel like I could have completely seen myself becoming immersed into that world. Yeah. I want to improve my time. I want to upgrade my pedals to an actual clip <laughs> instead yeah, of yeah. where you just slide your feet into. And, and I don't know. I always have like those sliding doors moment. And that was definitely one, at least as it pertains to the endurance world. It's interesting knowing you a little bit. I'm not sure that you would have enjoyed the, um, the lack of camaraderie, mm. actually. Um, and this is, and again, no knock on triathlon. We've, I've been part of some great groups and training groups over the years. But at the end of the day, the competition aspect really adds up in the triathlon world. And I think in the running world, it's more a percentage maybe, right? Like you yeah. go to ultra sign up or something like that. And you see what percentage you might have been. But there's not this race against the clock. There's not a Kona qualifier. The whole sport isn't overarching by this, will I qualify for Kona? We're dictated in the ultra running world by a lottery. (laughs) Will I get into Western states? That doesn't make you competitive with the next person. It makes you actually have more camaraderie with the next person because they understand the same situation. Yeah, certainly not among age groupers like myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in general, like if, even if you're competing, I remember early on in um, the ultra running world. I mean, I was pretty competitive at a North Face running in like here in in, in Marin, um, that national championship when they had it. Um, I was running in like second or third place for a while, and I had won the quad dipsy the week before, so I knew I was going to be up front. But I was like, all right, I try to get top ten. Even in that space of a 50 miler with a pretty stacked field, you're still running by yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, okay, maybe, maybe the front get two or three, there's a pack here and there, but even that breaks up. Like, there's none of this, I'm in your face getting after it. It's all right, I got to find my legs and eventually I'll either close the gap or I won't. <laughs> right? It's very rational <laughs> versus, yeah. It's in some ways, do you find ultramarathons more mental than a, a long-distance triathlon or even like a long-distance swim-run event? Um, actually, it's a different type of mental, right? Like um, the swim-run aspect is so many transitions and so much movement and so many different ways you're competing against others that, yeah, for sure it's more competitive because you're around athletes a lot more Um, and you can see them and you're swimming in different segments against them you move ahead of them then you're sort of ahead of them on the trail then they pass you on the trail and it's that's a pretty competitive sport i must say um that is caught me off guard with regards to swim run but triathlon um and ultra running you know triathlon you're you're measuring and you're paying attention to so much in that short window 10 hour window um (laughs) that the day goes by pretty quickly. So it's less time to really ruminate in your head. Right. Ultra running, you're just doing one activity through nature, through scenery, through open spaces, where it automatically pulls you into your inner self. Um, 
only so much, like I even noticed that in Tahoe, there's only so much you enjoy the scenery. After a while, your eyes sort of, and your emotions get numb to it. It all looks similar. The, 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 the awe has worn off and you're back in your head. So it's a different headspace. It's a different um, description that I would call mental because, yeah. you know, for me swimming, I thought that was a super mental sport, but it's more that psych out mental, you know, for 90 seconds or for two minutes, that's different mentally where if something goes wrong, you quickly could lose. Whereas here it's mental because it lasts so long. You have to sit with the pain and you have to sit with the monkey mind for so long that it's a different mental skill and it's a different mental category. Yeah, to your point, even some of the leaders are running for hours upon hours solo by themselves, and it's just a lot more time to get in your head. And so it's interesting for me um, and uh, having you as a coach, who I'm sure you have a varied array of athletes that you train and uh, counsel, that you almost have to play more of a role as like a psychiatrist or psychologist and talk your athletes through the, the mental aspect, maybe even more so than some of the other sports that we had previously mentioned. Yeah, but I've also found that by talking and creating a community of like-minded people, it eases the mental questions because you sort of have people that are in the same boat and you're bouncing ideas off of. Um, I've said during this quarantine and during COVID, the interesting thing is the Zoom calls that I do with all my athletes, the content has been so much more powerful and meaningful because people are sharing and putting themselves out there in a vulnerable way that it's me, it's quality for everybody, right? Um, I wouldn't say as much as I'm coaching mental as much as it is giving them an opportunity to learn through their training to then be stronger mentally. Because as you're observing, as you're growing, as you're learning in your activity, in the training, you are getting stronger mentally because you're becoming more and more familiar with the experience and experience builds your mental strength and those two working together. So the the intimidation factor of a 50 mile run when you did a, you know, 42 mile or a 38 mile training day and you can project out what the remaining 12 or 10 miles or eight miles might feel that's easier to do and we talk about that we download that versus in the beginning you're like oh my god what am i going to think about for 14 hours (laughs) and you're like actually it goes by quicker than you think speaking about coaching is this the most challenging period of time for you as a coach um, actually, no. Um, I've, and a lot of people have asked me about that. It's been one of my best times as a coach because I coach very few people that go l- typically from event to event. So the opportunity to work with more athletes self-curating their own adventures has been incredibly exciting. How quickly Mm. most of my athletes pivoted as well as new athletes that came on that were looking to use this time to not only get fitter, better, stronger, faster, smarter, but also to say, you know what? I've always wanted to do this. XYZ, Timberland Trail, Tahoe Rim Trail, JMT, um, parts of the Pacific Crest, um, hike, uh, climb Shasta, all those things that they always push off because of events, got to do this Ironman or got to do this trail run, or I've got to keep my UTMB points going, or I got to keep my, right. 
they, they took on different challenges this year and different events and different ideas and learned different things about themselves, did a different type of strength work and so forth. So it's been actually one of the most rewarding and positive times in my coaching that I've ever experienced. Do you have any athletes who, um, I think you mentioned Phil Maffetone, for instance, yeah. the uh, heart rate aerobic based training. Is yeah. there any athlete that you're currently coaching where you're doing like almost like a hard reset and starting from ground zero to build up their heart rate? Is that yeah. something that athletes are doing now these days too? For sure. I mean, especially the further we got into this. They, so some of the athletes, let's say my triathletes, they were kept, the hope was kept alive sort of by Ironman Corporation on, oh, we'll postpone it, postpone it, postpone it. And now the reality is it's not happening. So we're using that to start do a hard reset for sure. Um, running, for, uh, same thing, using this to set up the best possible 2021 um, with new strength, new routines, new mobility, new um, core and, and, and integrity of their entire body is become a very big um, focus for a lot of my athletes and also to address the limiters. I call them strengths and limiters, um, not weaknesses. And so we have these strengths that we like to work on when things are going well, but when things slow down like this, working on your limiters has been also something that's been very positive for a lot of athletes. Yeah. I'm finding, I have a Strava community where it's obviously virtual and uh, I'm posing daily questions just to keep people engaged and connected. And there are uh, quite a handful of athletes who are doing like the hard reset or, or, uh, you know, taking care of the things they've been neglecting, whether it's uh, PT related stuff, whether it's strength training stuff, core work, now's the time and the great opportunity to really make sure that you're, you're set for 2021. Oh, yeah. This, the lack of sense of urgency has been relaxing and uh, relieving for a lot of athletes because usually they're going, 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 right? A spring event, a fall event, trying to stay healthy through it all, trying to maintain a, some sort of form of fitness with this entire sort of um, you're going from a 50 miler to a 100 miler. Oh, I got into this. And even this year with the things being moved and, and you're looking for events to still execute on, it's been it's been a challenge, but constantly remembering what's the long-term outlook here. And that's again, been a a lot of fun with my athletes. I pivoted a few years ago away from the sort of structured events and more ultra endurance adventures and expeditions and events so that the longer, the better. And so within that, a lot of athletes already had a 2022, 2023 outlook. Um, and my desk is full of ideas and adventures that our athletes are sending me where it's like, I'm, I'm sitting there going, wow, that looks amazing. <laughs> I'm sort of jealous. I mean, we're talking like all the 14ers in Colorado, right? And there's a 60 hour cutoff. I think it's called Nolan's 14. And Something like that, I think maybe you it's know. not all the 14ers, but it's uh the 14ers within a certain uh range, the yeah. Watch range. Have, yeah, it's like you have 60 hours, and so we're getting ready for that. And I have another guy, he just emailed me his plan for 2022 and 2023 with regards to the Yukon Ultras up there, right? The 100 milers, there's 200 milers, there's you know, Bigfoot 200. I mean, that takes a while to get ready truly to enjoy it, you know, and, and as you know, from the times we've talked that 
I don't believe in just surviving. I believe in thriving on the course. And, and that's relative to everybody. You can only relatively thrive on a 200 mile run so much because you're hiking a lot of it, right? But just to be within yourself and still be able to take in the event, to enjoy it, to feel it, to experience it versus walk, getting through it like a zombie. Um, that's what I look for. And that's sort of like the the whole goal, like also with just doing the Tahoe Rim Trail and, you know, hopefully you with uh, John Muir, because I'm thinking that might be next for me, um, hmm. you know, feeling every day um, and feeling the experience and feeling out there and allowing it all to sink in versus if you're too tired, you know what it's like. You're just sort of in your head behind your hat and your sunnies and just sort of trudging along. And that's not the experience we want to have, right? Yeah. And you want to mix it up a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, to your point, creating your own adventures that involves a certain level of creativity. It involves uh, maybe a little less pressure in that there is a distance, but you, you maybe don't have the clock constantly on your mind so mm -hmm. you can stop and take that selfie or take that picture or <laughs> you know Which stop nice. and, you know, yeah and have lunch <laughs> with your friends and it's that added pressure of just time 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 and get faster 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 and improve upon that it's not necessarily there and the mountains the great thing about the mountains versus say a triathlon or um, road running is that the mountains are ostensibly your blank canvas. You can do whatever you want. The yeah. Nolan's 14 is just an arbitrary time. Let's 60 hours, it's 14ers within a certain mountain range. So it just made sense to connect it. And somebody had that vision. And yeah. so people adopted that. And there's maybe more natural, you know, circumnavigation of mountains that are just there that is uh, ripe for, you know, you to go out there and challenge and test yourself again. Yeah just with the sole purpose of finishing, whether with friends or by yourself to see how fast you can finish it. But it is, there is some creativity involved and I think that's fun too. And, and the logistics of planning is half the excitement, right? And as you're going through it and thinking about it and you're looking at the distances and elevation gain and starting to prepare for it, that creates the excitement too because you start visualizing how you'll be out there yeah. and the weather and the course and the terrain and sort of the inputs and that's already experiencing it like in so many ways. And many will say when you visualize in that type of meditation, you're already experiencing it in 40% of it, right? So that's part of the fun too. Self-curating versus showing up at an event and everything's laid out for you. You don't have the same visualization, the same experience, the same excitement, the same planning, the same logistics of this is mine, right? And none of us that I know are going for FKTs or anything like that. So when we're sitting somewhere with our achy knees and we're 75, 80 or whatever age we want to be, and we think back, we're going to think back on the trail and the adventures we self-curated versus a time or who yeah. we raced. And that's become more where it's like I can paint that picture for them and I can sense them and feel them and their excitement just starts bubbling up more and more because they go, yeah, that's what I want. And then we start building it. And think, the important thing for me is to model the way, right? Like I self-curate your own adventure, create it, create experiences even with others in it. And 
that's the future in, for a lot of people, I believe. There's no entry fees. <laughs> um, and, you know, you figure it out. And, and there's something to the planning, the logistics that just sparks a lot of creativity and a lot of benefits for the rest of our lives, too. As in, um, not the rest of our lives in years, but just in the other aspects of our life, at our work, in our family, constantly challenging ourselves um, with the logistics and planning and just thinking things through like that is a very good activity. I think one area or one aspect that we may have in common when it comes to trail and ultra running and road running or triathlons is that sometimes you could fall into the trappings of a rinse and repeat going to the same events, you know, the Boston, Chicago, New York every year or Western States, way too cool, mm. the North yep. Face. And and they ostensibly just kind of blend into one another. Whereas 2020, no one's going to forget some yeah. of the adventures, the self-curated yeah. adventures. I'm sure you won't forget Tahoe. Mm-hmm. I certainly won't forget John Muir Trail. So uh, that will be one of those standout memories that you have fully just like seared into your brain and psyche. So um, maybe we can transition to that. It's just a natural point. How long has the Tahoe Rim Trail circumnavigating that how long has that been on your we'll say adventure bucket list for lack of a better term <laughs> yeah well here's the funny story it's a truly a covid thing because until march 11th when our pool got shut down i was planning to swim the length of tahoe oh so is that right was, yeah 21.8 miles i was another buddy of mine at the pool was going for the record he just by coincidence did it the same days while i was up there running the rim. And I got a bunch of text messages from people saying, good luck. And I was like, wait, he's swimming it now. So universes just collide. But um, I was going to swim the length of Tahoe. And just because there's a bunch of kayaks and support out there, I was like, that's a great opportunity to do it myself. And I've always wanted to do that, a long open water swim like that. And so um, with the pools being canceled, and <laughs> everything being shut down, I was like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't really run after um, swim run um, Catalina, Attilo there. And I had a little bit of a hamstring niggle. And you know how it is with hamstring niggles. You think after 10 days, oh, I'll give it a whirl. And then you're like two runs in and boom, it pops back up. And so then it's like, all right, I'll give it another two weeks. Pops right back up. So I finally had to say, I'm taking a full month of doing nothing. So I didn't start running again until May 1. And then... uh, I was like, you know what? Tahoe was going to be my thing this year. So let me run the rim. So that's where it sort of came up. Right when I got, when I emailed you guys and just was, that's when I was thinking about it. That's how it it first came up. I have thought about the John Muir trail. Uh, I did a little bit last year and two years ago, looking at the running times, I think somebody just did the FKT there like last year or two years ago. And so I saw some footage of that. Might have even been Killian. Uh, Francois Dehane. Yeah, Francois. Yeah. And so um, I saw that and I was like, you know what? Obviously no FKT, but doing it, let's say in five days. Yeah. Um, let's see. What would the logistics be around that? I have all the books up here and maps and, you know, cut in points for support. Um, so I thought Tahoe this year would be a great way to test if that's something I'd be interested in. So in full disclosure, this was initially supposed to be a group adventure. I didn't know everybody on the list, but I brought in Jason Coop. You invited me. Um, Chris and I go back to 29029, so that's recent. It was uh, August of last year. 
Yeah. Yeah. So 2909, it's an Everesting event that takes place in Utah and Vermont. And, uh, you know, I had this, it's funny, I had this preconceived notion of who you were, <laughs> taking a yeah. little bit of a, a off-ramp here, um, just purely based on the interviews with Rich. And I, I don't know, I just had you as this kind of serious, very uh, <laughs> low-key guy. And we had a blast. Oh, we did. And I can tell you, you were anything but. You are... Uh, you were a lot of fun. We shared many hours on the on the gondola ride and the hiking up and down and at the same tent. And uh, yeah, we became quick buds. And uh, so when you invited me, I didn't think, I, I didn't really give it a second thought. I, I thought this is perfect for what's going yeah. on right now. Yeah. Um, I, as it turns out, I can, and I can only speak for myself, I just bit off a little more than I can chew or, or had two adventures a little too closely placed to one another. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so we, that would have been, I mean, it was a fun group. It would have, um, I, it's hard for me to even comment because since everybody <laughs> did, couldn't do it, um, I had the experience I had doing it solo. Um, it would have been a different experience for all of us to be together, but it would have also been this different energy, right? Because we're all different speeds, Jason flying out up front, all of us sort of mingling in between um, logistics of that and so forth, because I had it planned completely different than I the way I did it. Yeah, remind so, me who the other two was. It the other two guys? Yeah, another, okay. one of them is my one of my athletes, Keith, and um, he he he's a strong runner, so he would have probably been a little bit ahead of me. And then um, Taylor is an old buddy of mine who does a lot of my endurance adventures with me and crews for me in a lot of places. He crewed for me at Wasatch 100. He crewed for me up in Alaska last summer for an event. So I was like, you know what? Perfect to get outdoors and spend some days in nature. Um, so the four of us, including and plus me, we would have been five people out there. Um, so what so, happened to the other two guys? So um, the Taylor got injured. He had an abdominal pull and so couldn't really run. Um, Keith was going to do it up until like 10 days out. And then he got, um, he works for a private equity firm and they had this sign and signing a deal and buying a company, you know, typical <laughs> private yeah. equity um, last second. And he had to pull out because he was just working day and night on this deal and they had a bid in and it got, it got accepted. And so, um, and then Jason said pretty early on that I guess he was supporting an athlete doing tour the Giants, maybe I think it was Giants, or yeah. one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and then you were John Muir trailing it and came back wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> Little, little did I know. All I thought was involved was uh, fourteen days of hiking, sleeping, yeah. eating, and repeat. And I thought you're not ultra running as much as you used to, but you still have that background. So hiking yeah. for fourteen days—how's that a big deal? You forgot the sixty pounds on your back. <laughs> <laughs> little did I know. Um, I had a healthy dose of humble pie that I had to eat, but yeah, I was still on the very. Uh, very cusp of at least joining you for uh, a run or two, but mm -hmm. I don't know, life just got in the way. And there's so many excuses you can put in front of you to talk yourself out of it. But kudos to you, man, for actually following through. You were the last man standing. 
I was. And, um, you know, it was interesting because it was also hard because of that. Like, um, of in my prep, um, I wasn't planning to run solo. So I had sort of used my solo running time in the training, <laughs> that headspace, thinking, you know, um, I would have at least one other person, maybe two other people to run with. So that caught me a little bit off guard. Um, when you're preparing the whole time for a solo thing, I think you sort of get in your head prior how it's going to be, how it's going to feel, um, that you're going to have a lot of chatter and self-talk. Um, so I wasn't quite, that's, that caught me off guard. Boredom caught me off guard. Um, and you would think, well, beautiful scenery and terrain and adventure and nature, but it takes a while for the brain to sort of let go of its usual interests with regards to communication, with regards to sharing experiences and saying, oh, look at that. Look how beautiful that is. And then you yeah. realize, no, there's nobody there. You're talking to a chipmunk. And so there was that. Um, and, you know, I would say the hardest thing for me, and I'd be curious what the hardest thing for you on the John Muir trail was, is the getting out at night, because I'm not sure if everybody knows, but I had it set up that we get out every night. So we exit the trail at a major crossroads, um, go to town, have a meal, stay in a hotel or stay in a bed on the rental house, go back to the same spot in the morning, enter the trail early in the morning, do the rest of the run. Right. Well, that game actually played serious tricks on the mind because you go back to the comforts and the friendships and the people and the technology and all the things that you miss during the day. And then the excuses are easier to creep back in. You become sort of weak, <laughs> quite honestly. And I had to recognize that too. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, all, that'll all still be there in a couple of days. Like I said, I was going to do this. Now get up there and do it. Um, so it took Emily a little bit of like, why are you being so, what's going on with you? Get out there and finish this thing. We have nothing else planned these next few days. This is what you said you'd do. I came up here to support you. This is what I said I would do. You're not pulling the <laughs> pulling out of this. Um, you know, because I, I injured my leg and I started making excuses around that and keeping the wound clean and the infection and all that. And finally, it was just like, because the second day I got out, I, first day I did 41 miles, um, of which 13 were on that open wound. And so I got that cleaned up and people were worried around me. They're like, you really ought to go to the hospital, get that checked out. And I was like, listen, I'll soak it and Epsom salt and we'll figure this out. And let's see in the morning. So the next morning, because of the, that, I was much more gung-ho to just get out there and go because I was like, I'm not going to let this stop me. I, I had a good focus on it. By day, the end of day two, another uh, 37 miles in, I was like, all right, you know, maybe I should pay more attention to this. It didn't hurt or anything, but it just, you, you know, again, tw 10 hours on the trail, eight hours on the trail, you're in your head. It's hot, it's dry, it's unsupported. There's no water on that side of the lake. So you're hoping that when you get to the major crossings that the, the through hikers support groups put up those gallons of water. <laughs> and but then day three was the hardest one. I got a late start, started make, making excuses. And that's where luckily my better half, Emily, was just like, come on, get out there, get going. She hiked with me the first few miles. Then she had to turn around to get back to the car. And once I got that going, I was like, 
absolutely. What was I thinking? But the aspect of getting out every night and getting comfortable versus staying up and living in it is different. Yeah. And there's that low grade anxiety of, I just ran an ultra marathon and I have to do basically the same thing the next day. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Back to back to back to back. Yeah. yeah. It's daunting. So, uh, yeah, it is daunting. And, but I also knew from day one that I said, until 20 miles go by, nothing happens. No decisions are made. You can't judge how you're going to feel until 20 miles happens. And you know that from the long runs and the ultra runs you've done, you, you can't really get a sense on how your legs are going to be that day until you're like 20, 25 miles in. Until then, it's just like, yeah, everybody feels good the first 10. Like, ah, this is amazing. It was so beautiful day one. Like, and the sun rising and all this back and forth. And then I was like, uh oh, I think I might have started too fast. <laughs> so, um, so that was the, that was the premise. I was I said, you know, I'm going to get 20 ish miles in and then evaluate. And every day by 20 miles, I felt great. And you just want to keep going. I, is like, I'll, I'm going to do 40 today, or I'm going to make it to the, that last cutoff crossing in order to get out. Right. And then, um, so that's what, that's what happened. And then finally the fourth day got an early start sunrise. It was a beautiful spot and it was a little bit of a weird moment. Not weird is the wrong, but just sort of a cool moment because it started at echo summit. And that's where the 1968 Olympic trials were. Um, the first racially integrated games and they have this beautiful plaque up in this huge parking lot. And I just seen it on the Olympic channel about how, you know, the history of that spot and running and, you know, inclusion. And I was like, it was the sun was riding, rising over the mountains. I was like, this is, this is going to be a great day. Absolutely. I just had that energy and that turned out to be a 57 mile run day just to finish it out. Uh, Yeah. What was the lowest point? Was it that morning trying to get out? That, it was that morning. Yeah, it was that morning because of excuses, right? I was like, oh, I'm, I can't camp because I got to clean the wound out. And then it's boring up there. And, you know, I don't need to, uh, you know, just do another one. I can't, it just feels like I'm at home going on a long run. And a lot of sort of that chatter that's completely unnecessary, um, but that comes up for all of us. And until you get out the door, until you just start rolling, until you just start going, you, you're not having rational or good, you're not making good decisions as an athlete. Get in the pool, get out on your bike, get running, get on the trail, start your process, and then everything else slowly starts to fade away. And you actually go, okay, this is what I'm connected to. This is why I'm doing this. And you quickly have the moments, the experiences, the insights, those little pictures that you come around a turn on a run and you see this beautiful lake and you go, duh, this is why I'm out here. Yeah. As a mutual friend of ours likes to say, mood follows action. And a yeah. lot of the half the battle is just getting out the door and um, yeah. taking that first step. Um, sure. What did you How find out for you? Uh, hang on, hang on. One last question. Yeah. I want to. I want to know what you because you have a you had a hundred, hundred seventy two miles over four days, nearly thirty thousand feet of elevation gain. That's a lot of time to spend by your lonesome. Like, is there anything? It sounds like it wasn't anything cathartic, but maybe you learned something else about yourself out there 
during all that time? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what's the main takeaway that you didn't know about yourself or that you found out about yourself through that process of self-discovery that is ultra running? It was interesting. I thought there would be more of that. And you almost sort of look for it while you're out there. You're like, I've got eight hours. I've got nine hours. I've got last day. I've got 12 hours and 45 minutes. This has to mean I'm something. Just, exactly. Where, where is the enlightenment coming? Um, <laughs> It wasn't that it was, it, I was so stuck in the miles and keeping the legs going and definitely beautiful terrain and such that I couldn't even listen to music. I couldn't listen to a book. Um, I had all that with me, but just never sort of felt right. It was just time running. Um, you know, my watch, every mile would beep, <laughs> That's a lot of beeps. And it started at 6 a.m. And you're like, there's the first beep. I only got 39 more to go for every month. But um, no, there was actually, there wasn't anything uh, too enlightening out there. Or, or it was more that just coming to the realization that you need practice with the chatter in your mind. And I recognized that afterwards. Once I was off the trail and sort of, debriefing here these last few days it's you know it takes practice to be able to talk to that voice to allow the tools that you actually have within you to come up and help you talk to that voice and that is what i call the soul the higher consciousness that you come to a place where you actually can absorb the negative chatter and this negative self-talk and hear it and say thank you that's awesome that you're sharing that with me. But, you know, me and my soul, we feel pretty good about what we're doing here. And we're going to keep moving along. And guess what? I got nowhere else to be. And I'm going to keep moving until that sunsets, Right. And it, it, it started creating its own momentum of letting go of expectation or what it needs to be or where I want to be or how I want to feel at the end and just go, this is what you're doing today. And that to me is also the beauty of some of these events, like whether you're hiking, running, long rides or stuff like that. When you have multiple days where you say to yourself, this is what I planned. I have nothing else to do today. You sort of lose a lot of the weight and the expectations and sort of your your value system and you enter this whole new space of looking at it like that's fine you're just in the now that's exactly it you're in the present moment versus thinking back or forward well it's all the more impressive that there were such low stakes it could have worked the opposite way where you're like no one's gonna know or really no one's gonna care that i dropped out that i stopped running or that i decided to do um you know, 160 miles instead of the full 172. I'm sure you had all these thoughts creeping into your brain as well so that you had to combat nearly every mile or every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it would definitely help knowing that Emily was at the finish point. Like that's what I had to get to. So at 20, I would usually talk to her or text her. I'm not talk to her, but we would text. And um, I would say, you know, feeling good at 20, I'll meet you at the, and, and that was it. There was no more like, no, well, maybe at 20, right? Yeah. Um, so that helped. I, I had a point to get to. And, you know, it was usually around four in the afternoon that I'd be done. And then we'd quickly go into figuring out a meal and, and, and replenishing and getting ready for the next morning. So it was that helped um, having an out, but that that's you're happy with that distance a day. Um, and then that last day, 
I had an out. I had a buddy who ran with me for 30, uh, up until mile 35. And then I was like, you know what? I'm so close. I don't, I'm not going to want to come back here tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm just closing this out. So that helped too. You have that lure of being finished. How did you recover between the runs? Well, we quickly got back. Emily had a variety of food for me and hydration um, quickly to get calories in once off the trail, like literally within five minutes off the trail, I was replenishing. And as a nutritionist herself, she made sure that everything was in proper um, order. And so we, we quickly got in calories like that. Um, and then it was, you know, good meal, getting things cleaned up and taking care of the wound and then getting ready for bed. And that was that. I mean, it was a pretty routine, you know, you're done at, off the trail at 4.15. By the time we're in a hotel and really in sort of civilization, it's five. Then you focus on getting your meal in. And luckily, they had a Whole Foods down in South Lake that we stocked up at. And then, you know, it's about getting food in and it's about getting hydration in. And then the next morning, the beauty for me personally on ultra running is also, I don't need a big breakfast. Like I don't have time for a big breakfast. So I take it with me those first few miles. I just start right away with calories and, and fueling versus in triathlons or other events, you have the big breakfast and then you wait a little bit and then you start your day. Um, the beauty with us in a lot of ways that we're starting with hiking where it's cool and you just get going at a comfortable pace, it allows you to start fueling and, and get your, your meals going right away. Well, you got it done, man. We got it. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was a fun event. A lot of people ask me if I had a ton of fun with it. I wouldn't say fun. It was more a question of, um, you know, doing something like this solo and learning a lot about myself via the solo aspect and um, the experience of understanding, again, armed with tools for the next, you know, mentally and physically being better prepared for what's next. So, and you, you, I want to hear a little bit about the JMT. Yeah, I we could uh we don't have to go into it too in depth because i did do a full recap with my hiking buddies elon and gabby mm -hmm. but um i found a lot out about myself out there i think i was challenged a lot more than i had anticipated the main physically challenge, or mentally well physically physically first and then mentally there were many times mm -hmm. uh, especially at the kind of like the halfway to the three-quarter point where there were opportunities to easily drop out Mm. where you start having the conversation similar to what you had alluded to. But for me, it was, I have the excuse right in front of me. Like people see me hobbling, the blisters. I had multiple foot issues to people not in the know that came about and kind of took me off guard because I thought I had everything dialed in when it came to the right socks to use, the right lube, the right shoes. And it uh, turns out I had... I had none of those figured out when it, at least when it comes to through hiking like this. Mm -hmm. And um I don't know what exactly it was. I think it was a combination of of uh, just too much moisture building up in my feet and mm -hmm. having socks that were not appropriate for the conditions and it was it was like 70 to 80 degrees every day, bluebird skies and but it's I dry. It's dry. It's and very dusty. dry. Sand or dust can get in your your socks and your feet and cause abrasion. 
And the shoes, I really didn't give it much thought. It was actually the same shoes I wore for 29029. And I figured it worked then just fine. I didn't have any foot issues. So how would this be any different? Both were hiking events. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I just didn't really think about the cumulative effect of up, down, at altitude, um, uneven terrain, the heat again, and the, you know, the occasional river crossing. It's just all added to by day, I want to say six or seven. It got to the point where each morning I had a lot of self-doubt creeping in. And mm. thankfully, ibuprofen <laughs> was available, and I popped those like candy each morning. And it took a little while for it to kick in, but once it did, I felt okay. But then each morning, I had that self-doubt creep back in where my feet were swollen. Each step was an agonizing reminder of the shape that they were in, the pain that I was in, and it distracted so much from the beauty of the trails and it was probably one of the most beautiful aesthetically beautiful experiences i've had and that just compounded my frustration that yeah. you don't have that many opportunities to get a ticket or a, a, a permit to be able to do something like this and to have this much time off and i thought everything just aligned that it was the perfect opportunity for me to do something like this to be away for a couple of weeks and I was I was not having a good time because of the condition of my feet. Yeah. Let me ask you this, and this is what I reminded myself of a lot on the trail, and that is how you feel now having overcome, having persevered, having taken in the full experience, knowing that there's a version of you that could have gotten out after six, seven, eight days, and how would he be sitting here? And how right. would those questions and regrets, of course, right? Regrets, how would that person go through their days? And that it's all consuming. But one thing that I often think about and that Emily reminded me of is, who do you want to be on the other side of this? Like, do, do you want to wonder or do you want to know that you did it? And I think that's the the best feeling that you persevered through what you persevered through and live that, you know, that that's the story. And that's the, the, the choices you made every day to, to continue to be and be tugged and pulled along by this person right now, sitting here, knowing you've done it versus the other person who is there present right away saying, you can get out now. You can, you know, have plenty of reasons why you probably could could figure out a way to come back and do it again more prepared, but I'm here now. And that's what I think is beautiful. I've DNF'd, um, and by DNF, I mean did not finish, three, maybe four events. Hmm. And there hasn't been a single time where I look back with hindsight uh, available to me and said, that was still the right decision. Each no. and every one I've regretted. And yeah, and so it's different that it's an experience like John Muir versus uh, versus a race because again, it's not an official scarlet letter that you have to wear per se. You just didn't do it. But to use David Coggins as an analogy and the cookie jar analogy, 
it's just that one extra thing that you have in your arsenal. And I think that's the one thing that I was able to draw from in my 10 years or so in ultra running is that you have suffered through worse. You have overcome bigger hurdles. And similar to you, it wasn't necessarily this cathartic experience at the finish line. It was more a sense of relief, but at the same time, a relief in finishing, relief in deciding not to take that exit off the highway. Yeah. And, yeah. and that version of me has that one extra cookie in the cookie jar that I can draw from for the next experience. And yep. so I think it's just uh, that accumulation was more the takeaway for me, the extra cookie in the cookie yeah. jar. We, and, and these are the things we have to go through. Like I was saying to you, I DNF that Tahoe 100. And here I was having on doubts on the second day, like, or on the third day, excuse me, and going, you know, once I was up there, I was like, how dare I think like that? How dare me, right? Like I'm healthy, I'm able, I'm capable. It's just all between my shoulders. And that's one thing I control, right? And that's the thing, like you just said, that version of ourselves that finishes, um, that DNFs, there's always something where we can pick at and say, we could have done that a little bit better. I could have probably persevered more or, you know, gotten through it. But I want to sit back on that porch someday and know these are the experiences I remember, where I had outs, I had opportunities, um, and you know, I didn't, I, I, I persevered, and that's what I think you'll remember with the JMT is, like, man, I've done a lot of ultra runs and done, done a lot of organized events, but that one, and the things that I had to overcome for it, that's what I remember, and that that's that's what fills the soul, and that that truth, that truth is hard to replicate in everyday life where you're stripped down so many layers that an endurance event like the one you embarked on and, and to a degree the one I did, it can either expose you or it can reveal you. And yeah. I... The why, the why doesn't go away. Like, yeah. why am I doing this? Doesn't go away. Every step you took and it's in pain or it's just like not, in, you're not, it's not fading it's just constantly there. It wears on you. And the, the, so the why continues to be there. And that's the frustrating thing, not being answer, able to properly answer, why am I doing this? But that process, the why is exactly, you're answering it by taking another step because I can, because I'm here, because it's beautiful. And most importantly, for me, at least, it's always because I said I would. Yeah. And I think now more than ever, we need that mental fortitude. As trite as that may sound, it is very linear in, in the carryover to doing seemingly these rather arbitrary events. But I do think that it's just that, again, that extra cookie in the cookie jar that you get to draw from no matter what Great. obstacle you, you encounter in the future. I saw on your Instagram as I was perusing through in terms of adventures. It's a bike ride. Is that still happening? Yep. That's in three weeks. Portland to San Francisco. So, so you kind of put it out there for people to join you. Is this something that we can, we can put out there for the podcast listeners that they want to embark on? a? You could. It's full now. It's 20 riders okay. um, down the coast. Um, so my support team and crew and chase vehicles and all that can only handle about 20. So it filled up pretty quickly because people have no events. And they're like, yeah. great. 
adventure, experience, camaraderie, other people, check. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a beautiful ride and it's another endurance event because again, it's all you're doing from sunrise to sunset is riding your bike. Um, and, and I think this is a total of 72,000 feet of elevation gain over seven days. Yeah. It's a lot of cycling. It's, it's a rough, rugged coast, but it's beautiful and it's exciting. And, and here I have enough people Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, maybe you need to set up a wait list or something in case something like this happens again in the future. But um, that sounds yeah. amazing. Probably a lo- lot less pressure because, I don't know, cycling, you can stop and eat whatever and fuel up yeah. and, and jump back yeah. in the saddle and, and keep on going. So that sounds that sounds yeah. great. What about uh, running-wise? Is there a, a future running adventure for that something that here. you've been noodling around with? Nothing here in the fall, you know, um, now I, I mean, I've got the Oregon coast ride, but after that, it's pretty much done. I've got kids at home who are homeschooling. (laughs) So leaving for training days and all that is not quite as conducive. They're getting older and their, their needs, you know, one in high school and one in middle school. It's just, we got to push them through this time. And so, you know what, I'm going to put the, the endurance stuff on the back burner for the fall and see what 2021 opens up. I still want to do that swim. So um, that might be in 2021, but getting ready for a 21 mile or 10 hour swim is something that's in my wheelhouse that I can train for pretty time efficiently versus, you know, something longer. But, you know, as everybody who knows me knows, that's not the last word. Something presents itself all the time. What about the Otillo swim run events? Is that still in your future? Um, those were fun, but I did a bunch of them. And quite honestly, I want to be careful um, to not get caught up in another circuit of things that can suck you in, right? Um, that's important to me. I'm 50 years old. I want to do adventures and experiences and challenging things, but a lot more self-curated and things that just, you know, um, trigger a part of the soul that I've always wanted to do. And, you know, whether it's the John Muir trail or, you know, hiking some of these 14ers or doing some crazy adventures in the middle of nowhere, um, South America, Patagonia, things like that. That's sort of where the, the draw is these days and ultra running. That's the beauty of it, right? Like you get to see parts of a country that you, that most 99.9% of the world would never get a chance to have access to. And I think that's amazing that we on foot can go that deep into nature and experience it truly, you know, feel it, see it, sense it, truly take it all in. Well, keep me on that short list of uh, people that you could potentially invite and involve. And I promise to space out my personal adventures a little further (laughs) apart. Um, What about your coaching? Is there still space on your roster? Are you out there for hire? I'm always entertaining. I'm always open to athletes. Um, The reason is many athletes come and go, um, not not because of turnover, but just because life circumstances get in the way. Career, family, family. you know, finances, unfortunately, in this environment as well. So, but to me, it's always been some 
two simple criteria. Um, if it's an athlete that I'd like to have a beer with because they're interesting and they're fun, um, that's always a great first criteria. And then the second thing is that their adventure has to be something interesting to me, um, something that challenges me too, because I'm learning in the process of that um, how to coach better, but also in a different manner because every athlete is a little different. So they might be doing an event that I'm familiar with, let's say a hundred miler or climbing Everest, but how do I bring that person with their circumstances, their schedule, their life to that finish line to thrive and not just survive. And so from that, um, if I, if we can fulfill those two criteria sort of with good communication, there's always a roster spot. So website, Instagram handle.com. Yeah. Aim coaching, AIMP coaching.com. Like I told the guy on the trail, you'll like this. I was running along on the final day and I'm running downhill and I'm finally running downhill. It's a, it's a long up of just having gone over a pretty high pass and I'm running along. I'm like, all right, I'm finally getting some pace, right? You know what it's like. You see, you see 17, 18 minute miles for long enough. You're like, okay, I got to see some tens here eventually. <laughs> and this guy goes, Chris? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I really, I, I finally found you. I was like, well, is it, who's looking for me? <laughs> so anyway, I was a through hiker and um, he had heard from his wife on Instagram that I was running the trail and she follows Rich Roll and she knows that I'm his coach and all that. And so we were talking about the whole thing and he, he, he just, he just had a, uh, he's just like, well, how can I learn more about your website? And it, I was like, well, I say AIMP coaching, but the best way to remember it while you're on the trail here by yourself and you're going to forget about it is just think PIMP coaching, P-I-M-P, <laughs> and switch it out with an A in the beginning. He's like, I'll definitely remember PIMP coaching. <laughs> so, Well, if PIMP coaching isn't taken, I'm going to grab that URL now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that industry <laughs> might be a lot more lucrative. Than <laughs> is there anything else, buddy? Coaching. Not much, not yeah. much. It was great to catch up with you. I'm glad you uh, brought up the history of how we know each other. And, you know, despite it only being a year, I feel like uh, you and I can t tackle any um, adventure together because it's just easy to shoot the shit with you. Yeah, we definitely have the bullshitting on the trails down. So we just have to make sure we line up the schedules <laughs> and the legs. And you don't make me eat another Impossible Burger review. <laughs> <laughs> on camera oh that's right <laughs> now's a good time to feature that um, Chris always a pleasure take care buddy yes. and uh, don't be a stranger great to catch okay? up let's stay in touch okay everyone there it is my conversation with the great Chris Howe as mentioned if you are interested in getting his counsel and coaching services you can do so by visiting aimpcoaching.com and let him know you heard him here his Instagram for reference is at AIMP coach. And if you enjoyed the episode, you can let him know by tagging him there. And to all of you who continually share where and how you enjoy the episodes, thank you as always. I do check every single one. And that is at Billy Yang Pod for that. Also, a shout out to everyone who have taken the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. And a special tip of the cap to those who've gone even further to support me monetarily. That's patreon.com slash Billy Yang. And a shout out to my $7 and up pledges, including Bob Boardman, 
from uh, right here in Southern California, Rancho's Palos Fruities. It's uh, actually running distance from me. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Zach Riberti or Riberty, or maybe none of the above from Schaumburg, Illinois. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate that. And finally, to Malcolm Barron from all the way down under in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you to you, Malcolm, and uh, to latter of the two. I actually took the time to write me, and um, I, I really appreciate the message. Thank you, guys. And I thank you, as always, to my executive producers, Gary and Tammy Jones, Mark Grabowski, Mark Griffith, Wayne Chan, who crushed the 50K on his own. So shout out to you, Wayne, Andrew Pollard, Liz McHutchen, Spencer Punter, Jin Yang, and finally, Soon Chol Choi. Hope you're doing well in the Bay Area with all the smoke. If you want to engage with me and a lovely, lovely group of people, uh, want to shout out my club page once again on Strava. Just search for Billy Yang Running Community on Strava. And before I sign off, I want to reach out to each of you with a special plea. As many of you know, here in the States, it is an election year, and I'm sure that has not gone unnoticed. Uh, it's a contentious one. On November 2020, we're going to decide if Donald Trump gets reelected for a second term or if Joe Biden unseats him as the next candidate. And uh, if you guys know me, I don't like to get very political, but an unfortunate byproduct of an election year, especially one as heated as this one, is that everything gets politicized, everything gets contentious. And uh, when it gets contentious like this, we start to listen less and shout more, whether it's in person or virtually online and in social media. And look, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you how to vote, who to vote for, what I think about the candidates. I'm not here to do any of that. But what I would ask of each and every one of you is that no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, I would encourage you to try to engage in a more thoughtful discourse. Don't presume you know who someone is merely because of which box they're going to check come November. Take the time to listen. We're all nuanced and complicated creatures with individual thought, with our own set of values, and to try to distill everyone down to red and blue, black and white, it's just, it's dangerous. And it detracts from real issues going on in the world and issues that we're certainly better fighting together than apart. And I know this all sounds super general, but it's very intentionally stated as such to avoid partisanship or to create further divide and noise. So, I know it's tempting, and believe me, I've been guilty of this too. Next time you think about spending hours, you won't get back going back and forth with a neighbor or some random person that you're a couple of degrees removed from on a Facebook post. Ask yourself, is this really the best use of my time? So that's it. That's my simple ask of uh, this week, of today, and for all the days moving forward. I thank you guys for joining me. I thank you for sharing the episode on social media, for rating and reviewing on iTunes, as I've said. And I will see you all back here on the next episode. So, so you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field a cold steel rail 
smile from a veil Do you think you can tell Did they get you to trail 